the Psalms of David. And it's very important that you note that this is a Psalm of David because there is something that we have to address and respond to in context to the words of this particular Psalm. Now, that is Psalm 122. You may have not committed the, that particular Psalm to memory by just saying Psalm 122, but you're probably familiar with this very first verse as it's on the screen behind me. It says, I was glad... When the week finally arrived at the place, come on somebody, where I was privileged when they said unto me, let us, that means a corporate moment, not just a solitary moment in God's house, but let us come together into the house of the Lord. So let's say it without breaking it. I was glad when they said unto me, come on somebody, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. For Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compacted together, united together. Now, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and to the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. And that's part of the reason why you've come here today. Now, we remember and we know that Jesus, or excuse me, David was making this application to Jerusalem of old. But any time the corporate body of Christ comes together, that becomes the house of God. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I've written unto you that thou mightest know how thou to behave thyself in the church of the living God. And so again, whether or not we chose this building, this facility, a vacant you know, parking lot wouldn't matter at that moment. It becomes, it becomes consecrated to God. It becomes the house of God for his collective people at that particular moment. And so David is saying, when we've come there, we've come to be thankful and to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I came to give thanks unto the Lord today. Fifth verse, for there are set thrones of judgment and the thrones of the house of David. And so he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And certainly even though we know that there is an application of that to pray for the actual city of Jerusalem, the actual physical Jewish people, but we also make that application for it as G just as Jojo did a moment ago when he prayed that the peace of God would be yours. In essence, what he was saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of God in the hearts of the children of God. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will now say, peace be within thee. And I love that eighth verse because David, again, going back to that what Shane said earlier about sacrifice. Sometimes you come to church because you need to be encouraged. You need to be strengthened, edified, built up through the teaching and preaching of the word of God, through everything that's involved. But sometimes you also know that you go simply for the benefit of other people. You go because you're concerned about other people and you know that you've got gifts in your life and sometimes just being around somebody that's got the gifts of God active in their heart can be a swing of encouragement to a person that's going through a difficult season. And so he said, it's for my brethren and companions' sake that I'm saying peace be within thee and thus because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. I just love that song. And being absent from my church family for two plus weeks, actually three weeks in the, from the time that I preached an AM service to being back here with you, you know, it just found it in my heart to be the most appropriate passage of Scripture that I could have chosen. I don't share great theological depth with you today, but I have more of a vision casting moment. I'm going to read one additional verse of Scripture to which you may not understand right now, but you'll understand it in just a moment of time or a few minutes of time. So today again, even though Pastor Brown is a very theological, doctrinal pastor at his core, 
Today, it's more just about us, we. It's about our collective efforts and energy. It's about us having a vision, a dream, a hope, believing that when we come together, it is by divine purpose. God has united our hearts together, woven us together in faith. Come on. He has set Psalm 68, the solitary in families. You're my brothers and sisters, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, children, Right? It's this one big family of God, and we're just so grateful to be a part of it. And Paul here in his ministry, it's the, uh, it is the beloved Luke writing in Acts 20, the 7th verse. You won't understand it now in its context, but you'll understand it in a short while. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. I know the first response in your mind is, please, dear Lord. Do not let our pastor preach until midnight. There'll be more than just that one brother falling from the upper place in the seat. So, but today I do want to talk to you about just the virtue of going to God's house. I don't have a particular name for this message, but I think you're going to appreciate the journey I'm going to take you on. It's going to be kind of broad in the beginning, and it's going to narrow quickly towards the end. What I mean by that, it's going to speak to the church and just what we do kind of universally but as it narrows, it's going to become very specific to this people that's called First Assembly of God. Amen? Amen? So let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful to be in this house and thankful for this opportunity. And God, we want to ask with sincerity of heart that you would anoint the Word of God, that the Word would be preached easily today, God, that it would not only be preached easily, but it would be received by this great host of people, that they would have their hearts prepared beforehand that the word would be sown on good ground today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Amen. Just for a moment of time, without going back and backtracking too far, because I want to address this a little bit more later, in a few moments of time, I've always just appreciated whether you sing it, whether you say it, whether you think about it, how David began that psalm when he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, there's under the sound of my voice, every one of us at some time or the other, we have, come, we have come to church begrudgingly. Whether it be a youth that did not want to go or whether it were that you were a nursery worker and you almost, and you just, but it does not matter. Whether you be in ministry, whether you be a pastor, every one of us have had the occasional moment of time where it was difficult, it was a struggle, it was a challenge. You might be intimidated, you might be, in a very difficult season, you didn't want to be around people at that time. You just wanted to be isolated and kind of kept to yourself. And yet you had responsibility and obligation. Now, one thing concerning that that I have found personally from my many years of pastoring and also just being in the body of Christ. And that is sometimes and almost all the time whenever I have come to the house of God fatigued, frustrated, disappointed, or discouraged... Like entering in the temple of old, I came in one way, and I went out another way. Just being in his presence, surrounded by men and women that love God, uniting my heart together with them in a common agreement, lifted my countenance and gave me the strength and changed my perspective of the situation that I was involved in. But I do love what David said, and that is, though there are times when you go begrudgingly to the house of God, the majority of the time it is, I was glad. There's a song in our heart. There's an expectation. 
I don't know what it is. It's not just the four walls of the building. It's not a beige carpet or a beige chair. It's not a hardwood platform or a metallic podium. It has to be something more. It has to be something that in this place, when we collectively add our agreement, the sovereign presence of God visits us here and lifts our hearts and gives us the strength to continue being the people that God's called us to be. Now, very, just very briefly today, I want to take you on a brief journey through the collective gathering of the people of God. Now, for a moment, let me take, take you back to the Genesis when God covenanted first with Abraham. We don't find any record at that particular time of group gathering. Simply, God had made a covenant with one man and with his lineage. But if you find yourself in the book of Exodus, you find the beginning place of the gatherings of the people of God. Remember that Abraham's grandson Jacob had gone down and sojourned in Egypt and was there 400 years. And while there, under the oppression of Egypt, God formed a great nation. And when they were in oppression, they began to cry out for a deliverer. And Exodus tells us that Moses was sent back to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. He joined with his brother Aaron. And when he first came from Midian, the Bible says that they gathered all the elders together. And the people gathered together. I don't know if it was an open air. I don't know if it was done in private. Lest that Moses' identity would be uh, you know, known by the Egyptians and they might seek to take his life. I don't know. But all I know is, is that Moses, through his stammering and stuttering lips, whispered in the ear of Aaron and told him what to say. And he spoke to the people. And then he said, I've got this rod in my hand. I had it on the backside of the Midian desert. And he said, and God told me to cast it down. And when I did, it became a serpent. And so Aaron took that rod, cast it down in the presence of all the people. And they saw the great signs. And thus, that was the beginning of the gathering of the people of God, the necessity of the people of God to come together and when you begin to kind of this is going to just be a brief journey today just very quickly when you follow the journeys of the children of Israel from there following their deliverance when they begin to sojourn in the wilderness you are very familiar with how that they were instructed by Moses to erect a tabernacle because the wilderness would be a mobile journey they would journey for 40 years they needed a mobile tabernacle a means from which God himself would sit among them but not only would he sit among them the people which would be camped around about the tabernacle would then on particular occasions at the calling of Moses would then gather to the tabernacle it says in Leviticus 10 and 23 Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and when they came out and blessed the people and I love this when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. I'm telling you, you know what will change your perspective of church? It's when the glory of God comes in. That's when church is more than just a mundane gathering of sometimes religiously frustrated people, but a people that are exasperated with the things that are going on around them but found a great solace in God, and God's sovereign presence settles among them. And that's when they get changed. They get the strength to pick up their bags and continue along their journey. Amen. And that's what we are in pursuit of. Now, during the possession of the promised land, during the time of the judges, it was still the tabernacle. That was the meeting place. They called the tabernacle the meeting place. But there were also additional gatherings that took place. And I'm speaking of the time of the judges and also the first two kings prior to the building of the temple. It was during this time there were additional gatherings that took place. It wasn't just at the tabernacle, but they might have a specially called feast or a specially called festival. Sometimes they were 
worship God at a high place, which meant a mountaintop. People would gather. Now, I know later that that fell into idolatry, and it became an idolatrous practice. But in the origin, it was actually a very pure moment. And many times there were prophets involved at the high places. And I love that. I always love that passage of Scripture that speaks about the prophets coming down from the high place. They have timbrels and stringed instruments. They've been worshiping God, minstrels of music. They've been prophesying. That's that famous passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel when God told through the prophet Samuel, Saul, I want you to go here. You're going to, as you go about to go up the hill, you're going to meet a group of prophets coming down from the mountain, and they've been in the presence of God. They've been singing and shouting and rejoicing and building themselves up in faith. And when you get around them, you'll be changed into another man. I'm telling you, that's what the church needs. We need the sovereign presence of God upon the people of God so that when somebody whose heart is not right with God comes in our midst, the Spirit of God is so real, so vibrant, and so convicting that they fall down on their faces and get changed before God. So during this time, we also discover that David pitched a tent when David, following Saul, being removed from king, David becomes the king. You remember that David then pitched a tent for the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, though the tabernacle was in Shiloh. So there were at that time two places of worship. The tabernacle with the altar and with the other instruments of worship was at Shiloh. But David had selectively carried the Ark of the Covenant to a tent or a tabernacle that he had pitched in Mount Zion. Now this is why it's no, that I need to note this because when David David said in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The tribes of Israel journey up to Jerusalem. It would not be a rock-hewn temple that they would go and they would worship in, but it would simply be the, the moving canvas of a of a tent that David had pitched for it. Inside of that canvas tent would be the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God and with the Word of God. And David said, I'm so looking forward to just being around the Word of God, the presence of God, that I was glad. Come on, church family. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the presence of the Lord. Now, you know, I'm just taking you on a brief journey to get you to where I believe God wants us to go today. That later... When David uh, passed away, his son Solomon took upon by the exhortation of God to build the temple. No longer would the tabernacle, the mobile means of worship be necessary because God had chosen Jerusalem, because he had chosen to put his name on that city. Then David passed the baton to Solomon to erect the temple. Solomon's temple was completed there, and the scripture then tells us that it became a place of central worship for Israel. It was there that you would bring sacrifice. You could worship God anywhere, but you, could not bring, you couldn't bring sacrifice anywhere. You had to bring sacrifice to the altar of God there at the temple of God in Jerusalem. They would offer sacrifice on the brazen altar both morning and night, hence the term the morning and the evening sacrifice. It was there that the trumpeters and the, music, the musicians would sing and in one accord. Matter of fact, many of you are familiar with the very first worship service in the dedication of the temple. For it says in 1 Kings chapter number 8 that when all the musicians and the singers became as one, when their voices were united together as one, that the glory of God 
in what we describe it as the Shekinah. It's not found in the scriptures, but it's in the Hebrew. It means the invisible presence of God manifested. The Shekinah glory of God filled the temple to the degree that not a single priest could minister. A preacher couldn't preach. A musician couldn't play. A teacher couldn't teach. The king couldn't lead. At that moment, the sovereign presence of God was so real that people could only do one thing, fall on their faces before God in his sovereign presence. I'm telling you, we need experiences like that in the house of God. We need those moments when we just have the glory of God. But associated with worship of God through the means of the temple was prayer. It was to be a house of prayer for all people. Reading and teaching and discussions of the law was important. Three times a year, all the Israel males were required to go up to Jerusalem There'd be a revival. People's hearts would turn to God, and they'd come back, and they would restore, be restored in their worship. But unfortunately, because of continual ne- negligence and the worshiping of idols, in 576 B.C., 410 years after the dedication of the Temple of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon came to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple captured the majority of the people and brought them back to Babylon as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah where they were held in captivity for 70 years. And while there, something very... it was, it was very, if we can look at it, it was very monumental to the future of the nation of Israel took place. First of all, while in captivity, God appeared through an angel to a prophet by the name of Ezekiel and said, I'm going to bring back my people to their land. And he said that the, uh, the, that the desert's going to blossom again and it's going to bring forth a rose. He also promised a living stream of water that would flow out of the threshold of the temple and that it would flow to all the nations of the world. So there was an expectation that God would bring them back. But something happened while they were in that captivity that is still with the Jewish people unto this day. Because they could no longer worship God at the temple, they, did, they, they, they simply said, we've got to devise a way that we can teach our children about God, about the Word of God. We're living in a pagan land. We're surrounded by pagans. And so they developed what's known as the synagogue during that time. The synagogue simply means the assembly of the congregation, the assembling, the gathering of the people of God. And so there, though they would always look towards Jerusalem, but there inside a gathering, a building, an individual place that had been consecrated and dedicated, the Jewish people, even while in captivity, began to come together every Sabbath to be taught the Word of God. And that's still a practice maintained by the Jewish people to this day. Once Israel was allowed to return to their homeland 70 years later, not everyone did so. Many remained in their prospective cities of the now the Persian Empire. But the practice of the synagogue would continue. First of all, it continued for those that were still separated from their homeland and within the Judean province. Meaning, though, even though the temple was rebuilt, not everybody went back to the land of Israel. So they continued to worship God through the synagogue to, be, to learn about God and to discuss the law of Moses. And then, but also, though, again, the people that sojourned back to the land and reestablished their lives also said, you know what, three times a year is not enough to go to church. Can't just go on Christmas and Easter. 
We've got to have an opportunity to go to church a little bit more often. And so even though they began to, to, to re-inhabit the nation and, fill, and, and form communities and villages, and they were only required by the law to go up to Jerusalem three times a year, they began to erect a synagogue in every city. And it would be there that they would send their children to be taught through the course of the week. It was a meeting house, a meeting place. It was a place used for more than just, of course, again, they used the Word of God to teach their children, both in, ed in education and in their religious convictions as well. And then on the Sabbath, all the families would come together, and there they would be taught the Word of God. It was divided by gender. The men would be on one side, separated from the women, who would often look through a lattice. They would have a copy of the Scriptures, a speaker like myself would take the scroll, unroll the scroll, read from first the law, read from then the prophets, and then give people an opportunity to speak or to relate concerning the promises of God. It was very, very important to the people, and it was from that environment in which Jesus and his own disciples were brought up. You remember, Jesus was brought up in the synagogue. Matter of fact, for just a moment, let me take you into this. Remember Jesus and his, uh, uh, his love for corporate worship? He was 12 years old. And his mom and dad lost their child because they had been up to the temple at a particular feast. They're on their way home. And uh, Mary and Joseph, well, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Well, he must be with uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so. And so uh, they went a day's journey, a couple days journey. And they said, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? And they discovered they don't have Jesus. They lost Jesus. They lost Jesus on their way back home. Please don't do that today. Please don't lose Jesus today. But in doing so, they went back to, the, to Jerusalem. And while there, they searched the city top to bottom and were finally exasperated. And I suppose they just went to the temple to pray. I suppose they just said, we don't know what to do. Let's go to God's house and call upon his name. And as they're getting closer, they're hearing the immature voice of an adolescent teaching the men. And they said, what is that? Because I'm sure at that age, 12 years of age, he's in the process of going into puberty. His voice is squeaking occasionally. And this young child of theirs knows the law better than every doctor of the law that's hearing the law taught because he was the word. And so they said to him, they said, did you not know that your father and I would be, you know, worried about you? Remember what Jesus said, wished you not know that I would be about my father's business or be found in my father's house. But the Bible says he went down to Nazareth and was subject to them. And then he developed the custom of going to the synagogue every Sabbath day. And so by the time he starts his ministry, Jesus is used and accustomed to being in the synagogue. He's used to just the community of Nazareth coming together, and he started his miracle ministry right there at Nazareth. And the Bible says in Luke 4 and 15, he taught in their synagogues. Scripture tells us that he performed miracles and cast out devils in the synagogue. I love that passage in the Scripture that tells about when that first miracle was at Capernaum, and he's in the middle just sitting there, and all of a sudden, because he's there, a man whose son has a demon spirit, I'm telling you, when you turn the light on, the creatures of darkness get all agitated. And so when the presence of God visibly is manifested in the life of Jesus, suddenly that boy who'd been coming to church, I'm looking for that day. I'm looking for that day, church family, when people just sitting here amongst the people of God and the presence of God, devils that have had people bound for years and years and years and generational curse and generational curse, but in the power and the presence of the Spirit of God, a change has worked. And they're made whole by the power of God. So at the synagogue, 
And so Jesus, in his life, he also ministered at the synagogue, but he also journeyed to Jerusalem during the feast. He even cleansed the temple, demanding it to be restored to a house of prayer for all nations. So our journey is nearing its completion. And so when Jesus is dead, buried, and resurrected to the right hand of the Father, in the pattern of the early church was to first worship there at Jerusalem. It was exclusively Jewish. They continued in Jesus' exhortation, tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. I opened the service by quoting Luke chapter 24. They were found continually in the temple of God worshiping. The Jews had not ostracized them from the covenant family as of yet. And they also added to their worship by breaking bread from house to house. They would come over not to watch the ball game or the fight or the UFC fight or anything like that. They would invite everybody over to have a prayer meeting. Wouldn't that bring revival to our church and our community? Come on. And so they would gather and they'd begin to pray. And this was their means of worship, of encouraging one another and, 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 and growing in their faith. And the apostle Paul, though, when he received his call and his mission to go into the Gentile world, he made use of the synagogue. Now, remember, go back with me all the way to Babylon. Many people that had been taken captive during the days of the destruction of the temple remained in those foreign lands. And in doing so, they established synagogues. By the time of Jesus, there were hundreds of synagogues throughout all the Roman Empire. And so when Paul would go to a new city to preach, he wouldn't typically just stand on the street corner. He would go to the synagogue and there he would minister to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Oftentimes the Jew would halfway believe until he, they would see so how many Gentiles were responding and it would create dissension and Paul ultimately would eventually have to stop but that would be a starting point. So lastly, in this context, eventually the Jewish temple was destroyed. 70 AD, the temple was totally destroyed by Titus, the Roman general. And then the division of Jews and Christians grew so great that they would no longer worship together in one collective place. Christians that were made up of both Jew and Gentiles would meet separately from just exclusively Jews who did not believe in the Messiah. And they would meet first in homes or then they would find or obtain large open rooms where there was enough room to, to handle the growing crowds. Eventually, they would have their own private houses of worship, but they would retain much of their practice of worship that they had gleaned from their time in Judaism. So much of Christian worship would follow the blueprint that they had learned through Judaism. And let me say this as I begin to shift this and to narrow it and make it applicable to us. Let me tell you about corporate worship. I believe in it. Well, Lord, I'm thankful it's just me and about three others here. I believe in corporate worship. Man, I'm glad. David said I was glad. I didn't come to this house in the mully grubs today. I know there's chaos going on. And just as Joe said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. But I do want to remind you that there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem today that you can sojourn with the pilgrims that testifies that he did overcome the world. And that gives us great hope in the midst of even times of sorrow. So there's not an exact biblical blueprint or an order of worship. God in the scriptures didn't say in every church, here's your order of worship. You've got to do this, number one, this, number two. But we just have exhortations about worship. There's not even a certain command of when or where or how often to gather. There are just exhortations like this. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. 
as the manner of some is. And there is the manner of some even in the church. He said, as often as you do it in the context of communion. He said in 1 Corinthians, when you come together. So whenever it's agreed upon by the body to come together, that's when you come together. The passage that I read in Acts, it said on the first day of the week. Originally, it seemed that the, the Christian church with the influence of the Jews worshiped God on the Sabbath. But by the time we read this in Acts 20, because of the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, it seems like they had transitioned from the Sabbath. Are y'all with me, church family? So let's go a little bit further. What we know through the scriptural record and early church history is that the meetings consisted of, first of all, prayer. God's house should be a house of prayer. There's no greater place for you to get alone. You say, well, pastor, it's a corporate setting. How can I get alone? You close yourself in your own closet. You're not worried about whether somebody's praying out loud next to you. Don't let that bother you. you got two hands. Put them over your ears if it's bothering you. But when you pray, say, lift up your voice and cry aloud. Lift up your voice and call upon the name of God. May God always add his blessing and lend his ear to the people of God that cry aloud in this house. Prayer. Number two, worship. And song and celebration, did you know the Bible says in Colossians 3 and 16 that through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we make joy and melody in our hearts. Some say we're not supposed to have musical instruments on the platform, but the word psalm in the original language means to strike a musical instrument with your hand. And so therefore, we have skilled musicians and singers that add their voice. We join our voice together and we become one collective choir to lift up the wonderful name of Jesus and to bring him praise and adoration. We sing a new song. We sing an old song. We sing fast songs. We sing slow songs. We sing traditional songs. We sing contemporary songs. But the key is, are you singing in your heart, celebrating the love of God in Christ Jesus? Hallelujah. The reading of Scripture. I love to hear somebody read the Word of God, especially when somebody's got the anointing on their life. Paul told Timothy, he said, till I come, give attendance to reading. Take the time. I've told you before, sometimes us preachers just mess the sermon all up when we just let the word speak for itself. The reading of scripture, then there's teaching and preaching. Thank God for those that are specifically gifted to read a passage of scripture and help you understand it. People that have given themselves over to pray and ask God to illuminate a text to you. Does that help? I think it does. I'm thankful for those that have been leaders over me in my life, pastors and teachers that had a knowledge of God that have helped pass it into my life. Even when Paul preached till midnight, testimonies about miracles, we need testimonies about the miraculous grace of God. I love this. This is a part of the church. It's called the laying on of hands. I'll tell you, I love it. I love, I love when we have the opportunity. Sometimes we do it before worship. Sometimes we do it after service. Sometimes we don't do it. But it doesn't mean that we don't believe in it even when we don't do it at that moment. I love what can take place when there's a man or a woman of God anointed of the Holy Spirit who's been sent to you to lay hands on you that in that moment there can be a divine impartation of the Spirit of God and a prophetical utterance can be spoken over your life right a, a prophet that will give you courage to go back out and face your giants and face your enemies thank god for it we need it in the house of god we need prophesying and not only do we need prophesying we need other spiritual gifts 
And we need you functioning in those gifts. It doesn't need to be the Lee, Joe, Shane, and Brent show around here. It needs to be every one of you hath a gift, has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a word, has an encouragement. You can pray for somebody. No greater joy in my heart than to see you pray for you and you pray for you and you share a word and you share a word and you lift somebody else up. Come on, and that God is using everybody. It's not about a title. It's not about a position. It's about an anointing. If you've got an anointing, God put it on you to share. That's why you came. David said, I'm going to the house of God because I'm considering the others. They need my encouragement. They need my gift. You didn't come here today to just sit down and be fed. You come to feed. You come to give. You come to share. You're anointed of God. And if you would come to church with that perspective every Sunday, come on, you would then prepare yourself because you'd say, God, I'm considering those that are around me. Man, that's good preaching for a man that's been in Maine for two weeks. And then communion, the power of fellowship, the power of love, the power of brotherhood. You know, I know, I remember Joe kind of commented on this in our private devotions one time, but they used to call the early church gatherings a love feast. That'd be a little awkward if we had on the church signed in our culture today, welcome you to our love feast. However, it was acceptable in that time. <laughs> Come on. But I tell you what, it is a feast of love. It is a fellowship. It's a communion. I want to say this again to you. Psalm 68 says God sets the solitary in families. You know, I have a growing family. We just added an additional one on Friday. But let me say this. You may not have such a growing family, but you have a family right here. Right, where love and friendship and fellowship. Let me say this with Pastor Well. Nobody's been friendly to me. Well, show yourself friendly. Oh, I know you wouldn't shout very good on that one right there because you put the burden on somebody else all the time. You want friends? Show yourself friendly. You want to get connected? Then get connected. You want to make this a family more than just a building that you attend and stop by, occasionally drop your offering off on your way to the lake? Then you got to show yourself friendly. Come on. All things are intended in our heart and designed to glorify God, number one. Oh, hallelujah, to glorify God, to edify the body. I'm concerned about you. I know you're facing some things that I may not be facing, and you need to be built up. You need to be strong. So it's to glorify God, edify the body, and also even allow for the conversion of the lost who might be in attendance who may have come with you by invitation, but the spirit of conviction. Oh, how we need conviction in the church today. I was pondering while I was in, um, in Maine, and I thought to myself, unfortunately, we're building the church around coolness in our generation. We need the church cool. We want it cool. Everybody's got a certain look and sound and act and look. Let me tell you, it's not the coolness that we need. It's conviction that we need. That's what we need in the church. We need the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Coming to church allows for us to be accountable to one another. It allows us because we're scattered. Remember in days gone by, ancient Israel said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally. Somebody's in need. Somebody's fighting. The enemy's broke in. He's come in through the breach in the wall. But when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that's what church needs to be. Church needs to be you heard the sound of the trumpet. Maybe the enemy's not come in at your wall, but it's coming in at somebody else's place. And they need you to fight with them. Let me tell you about church. It takes, it's, it's also involves goals and desires of unity and fellowship. It's always our desires as pastors that we have a unified fellowship. You know, that there will be no division or schisms in the body. It does. I hear people say this all the time. Well, there are little cliques in that church. Well, listen, a clique is different than a schism. You are misplacing that. Just because there are people that have common interests doesn't mean that they are against you and against the corporate 
work of this body. Some are going to talk about certain things and say, well, you've got to find your place. There's a click that you can make your way into around here. There is. There's a people group, that you, but you've got to try. It takes planning. It doesn't just happen. It takes planning, goals. It takes facilities and facilitating in order for us to have the value and the virtue of corporate worship. Leaders and workers are needed. One time we totaled up in order to us to really have effective church on a Sunday morning. We need at least 70 people. On a typical, this is a little bit lower Sunday morning. We've hit the summer slump. On a typical Sunday, we would average 200 adults in the sanctuary. That means it takes almost uh, one-third of us just to be able to teach the classes, drive the bus, have the offering, preach the sermon, have the worship team. In the midst of this, in the midst of order, we believe in order because God's a God of order. In the midst of order, we always reserve the room for the spontaneous response to and the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit of God who bypasses our order, our prescribed plan, what the song list is going to be like, what the sermon should look like, what the exhortation be like, what time church starts and what times it gets out. Listen, when the Holy Spirit, we want him to have his way. We want to invite him, welcome him, and say, God, we want you to move and do and have all that you desire in the midst of our church family. Amen? And all the while that this is taking place within our fellowship while we're here, the principles of faith that were in the epistles about loving one another and being considerate of one another, these should be realized and strengthened through corporate worship, right? It shouldn't make you worse. Remember what Paul reproved the Corinthians for? He said, I'm writing unto you because when you come together, it is not for your good, but it's for your worse." He's saying, rather than come and being edified and strengthened and made whole, said, you're coming, you're getting scattered and tattered and broken up and becoming angry and frustrated at one another. That's not the way God wants the house of God. He wants us to come and say, I was glad when they said, let's go. And when I left, I had more joy than when I got there. That's what our pursuit is. Let me say this. Every church has its own identity its own vision, its own purpose. I'm not here to judge the Methodist. I'm not here to judge New Life, the Church of God, or the Nazarene or First Baptist. I've got one church God's laid on my heart to be responsible for, and that's First Assembly of God. I'm going to pray for those other churches. I cannot do what they're doing. We cannot be who they are. God's given them their own unique calling, purpose, and plan, but God's given First Assembly its own corporate vision as well. In closing today, I'm going to remind you of it just very, very quickly of a couple of things. And I've extracted this very, very quickly. I've extracted this from our own 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. Yes, did you hear what I said? The 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. For it corresponds with a core value of first assembly. And core value number three of first assembly of God says we value the gifts, callings, and work of the Holy Spirit. And believe that they must be desired, developed, and maintained. That means that we as a fellowship believe in the virtue of Pentecostalism. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm very grateful for it and thankful for it. Were we able, Philly, to get the fundamental truth number 10? I want to bring it up because I want to bring your attention to it real quickly. I'm going to go down. I'm going to bypass it. Keep on going down through this. We're going to go a little bit further into it for just a moment of time. If we can. What's that? Okay, I'm sorry. That's Well, I've got it. I'll just read it to y'all. How about that? Sorry about that. That's the 10th one. It's on down into the 10th one. You say, well, Pastor, don't get and make this all religious and don't make it all legalistic and don't make it all governmental. I don't want to. No, this is not about that. It's about a belief 
of uniting our hearts together to one of the great purposes of why we come together. Why do we come together and have a sign outside the building that says First Assembly of God or Heber Springs First Assembly of God? What virtue is in that? What does that speak of? It speaks of an agreement that was made by the delegates of the Assemblies of God in 1916 when they chose the 16 fundamental truths. And the 10th fundamental truth, which is called the church and its mission, under subpoint D, excuse me, just below D, it says this, the assemblies of God exist expressly to give continuing emphasis to this reason for being in the New Testament apostolic pattern by teaching and encouraging believers uh, to sit at church and not respond to the power of God. No, that's not what it says. Here's what it says. It says, by teaching you through following the pattern of, of, of that apostolic pattern, we encourage you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God. We encourage you that whether you've been in the church all your life or you just got saved last week, whether you're male or female, whether or not you are rich or poor, whether you came from a Baptist or a Methodist or you came from a heathen family, it matters not that God promised in the last days he would pour his spirit out upon all flesh and that if you would come to God with a pure heart and say, God, I'm yours. I've received of your spirit at regeneration, but God, I want more. I read in the word of God more. I read of it experience God that will catapult my worship I read of an endowment of power I read of an unction I read of an anointing I read about miracles and signs and wonders God I want the baptism in the Holy Spirit I want what the, I see and read about in the book of Acts God can I receive that this church exists to give continual emphasis that every man woman boy and girl born of the Holy Spirit ought to be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God and that experience will change your Christian life it's not saying you're not saved prior to that experience it's saying that God will fill you with the Holy Spirit empowering you to be who God has called you to be the forefathers of the assemblies of God said that that experience will do this it will enable you to evangelize in the power of the Spirit it will also add a necessary dimension to a worshipful relationship with God come on how many of you agree with that right there Say, my God, when I received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, come on, water began to flow. Living water flowed out of my spirit. I communed with God in a way that I'd never communed previously. I'm not trying in any way to belittle any person who has never received. I'm trying to just keep encouraging you to believe to receive. Lastly, it says this, it enables you to respond to the full working of the Holy Spirit in expression of fruits and gifts and ministries in the New Testament times for the edifying of the body of Christ and for the care of the poor and the needy of the world. In essence, it says that we can't do the work of the church effectually, effectively, excuse me, unless we have. Are y'all hearing me today? So here's where I close by making this very, very personal. I've said all that. Now, you know you're thinking, well, Pastor Brown's preaching about the baptism. No, that's not the goal today. The goal is to remind you of who we are and why we need the virtue of coming together. Let me share this with you real quickly. It is my personal conviction, and I have exercised this and shared this in private times with JoJo and Shane and Brent and certainly then with our board on, on Wednesday. But it is my personal conviction that God wants and desires for our fellowship to allow in our meetings opportunities for people to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That just means I don't have to preach about it for it to happen. I don't have to just have, I mean, it just means if we have 
the presence of God. If we have faith, if we create the opportunity. Here's what I have just said, and I'm going to be honest with you. Through my own admission, through my own admission, the greatest two or the greatest hindrance to this, I'm going to rock your world, for our fellowship is the lack of the Sunday night service. It's the lack of it. Because, let me say this, I was the person multiple years ago that when our attendance had begun to wane some on Sunday nights, to shift away from it. But it wasn't because of the attendance. It was primarily because the objective was to take the pressure off the back end of the AM service. But after several years of functioning this way, I've reached the conclusion. Here's what I've concluded. Number one, there will always be pressure on the back end of the Sunday a.m. service. It doesn't matter where you are, that when it starts getting close to noon, let me see right now, I'm already in overtime in many of your minds. It's at 12.04. And so I already know, I already know that. My motive was pure to take, it, to, to take the pressure off, but I'm simply, we're simply unsuccessful in doing so. But again, I've concluded that we need to be consistent with who we are and what I mean by that is if we are chosen by God to be a Pentecostal charismatic fellowship where men and women can invite their family and friends with the possibility that the altar experience might result in someone having received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, then we need to create the environment for it. Even though it is sacrificial on our part, and I, what I mean by that is, but it's really not sacrificial. God, forgive me for saying that. Oh, would to God, we have to now give up an extra night of watching television. Life groups are great things. I thank God for them. There are some churches that they have been able to build dynamic fellowships by the strength of a life group. But let me say this, what I've concluded at First Assembly. Life groups accent our fellowship, our church, but they cannot fully identify our fellowship. Because our identity needs to be at the altar. I believe in sharing a fellowship. I went to a life group a few weeks ago on a Sunday night. We went and had a meal somewhere. And it was a great evening. I'm not in any way against it. It was a wonderful evening. But I'm telling you what, God called me to do more than just have a meal at a restaurant somewhere. God wants me to lead a church that creates an environment for the Holy Spirit to move. So that people who, not have, who don't have what we have, for the good, number four, of others, we do this. For the good of others that we do this. We do this because I believe in my heart of hearts. So my intention, here's the big announcement. Are you ready for the big announcement? Bum, 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 I should have had it on the screen. The big announcement that I've only shared with a very few handful of people, including my own daughter, who came to me and I said, I can't tell you, Alyssa. She said, listen, I'm on the inner core and you're going to tell me. So she knows. Is that on July the 10th, July the 10th, at 6 p.m., I encourage every man, woman, boy, and girl that at about 5.30, you get in your vehicle and you head to First Assembly of God because at 6 p.m., we're going to strike the first chord of the worship song and then we're going to, incre- we're going to believe God that God has brought this to our plans, our attention, so that we can be a fellowship. We can be that fellowship. That if God chooses to visit with his supernatural power, then he'll have the freedom to do so. We can be the fellowship. Listen, we can be the fellowship. You've been so good to go into the community and handle yourself well. 
That when people look at you, let me just say this, God, help me to say this the right way. Help me to say it the right way. Sometimes people look at Pentecostals like, whoa. You know what I'm talking about. They do. But you've handled yourself well. You are the Pentecostal church in Heber Springs that people don't get freaked out by. Come on, they've seen us on the basketball court. Okay, I did get thrown out of one game. It was just one game. <laughs> apart from that, apart from that, we have held JoJo's. Let me say this. I can't say I've always handled myself well. JoJo has handled himself well, but his sons are not old yet, so we'll see. I may have to escort both Joe and out at some point in time, <laughs> give them counseling. But nonetheless, in all jesting aside, you have handled yourself with integrity. People look to you. They know you've got an anointing. And in times like these, we need a church. Our community needs a church. And I'm telling you, I've been missing the fellowship. Shane said, Pastor, he said, I remember I miss just being at church early and playing in the parking lot like I did as a kid. I miss all of that. Don't get run over in the parking lot. But whatever it takes, we need that. We, we, I miss it all. And so through a collective agreement, unanimous agreement from our leaders and from our board, we just said, let's just bring it back because God, I believe, means that this is the season for our fellowship. That's the big announcement. Now, I will still, let me go ahead and put out this disclaimer. I still will occasionally dismiss the service on a holiday weekend. Because that's, I mean, it's Mother's Day. You're going to go see mom. But let me just tell you this right here. We're going to be consistent. We're going to plan it. We're going to pray over it. We're going to believe God for it to be exciting. But we're going to believe it's going to be effectual. And we want to raise up a generation of people that know how to call upon the name of God at the altar that will trust in God, that will linger and stay. And I'm telling you what, I, I just there's, there's no way not to have pressure on the back end of the service on a Sunday morning service. So we might as well just say, you know what, let's come on. Let's get it back and let's, get, let's just move forward and trust the Lord to do great things. So I'm going to ask you to stand up today. I don't know how long I pray or preach today, but I want you to see if you can say this with me. See if you can say this with me. I said, I know some of you are thinking, Pastor Brown's going to say, I will attend Sunday night service. No, I'm not. Here's what I'm going to say. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Come on, somebody. Amen. I was glad. I was glad.